Blog Talk Radio. topics, sometimes some difficult topics, and today I think we have uh, kind of a combination uh, of, uh, of of those those topics. We have with us Ray Hernandez, and is it Julian or Julian? Julian. Julian. And um, uh, we're very, very fortunate to have him. He is an economics professor, and I'm going to let you, Ray, kind of describe what it is that you do. Can you tell us more about what you do? Sure. Uh Thanks for having me, first of all, and um, I am an associate professor of economics at the Metropolitan State University of Denver. Uh, My research is mostly in uh, economics of higher education, particularly looking at predictors of student outcomes in higher education, Uh, though I have some uh, research in other topics such as the economics of religion and um, some development economics as well. We were talking a little bit um, before we went on air, Ray, about... You know, I found it really interesting that you're an economics professor, and yet the study that we're going to be talking about has to do with student outcomes, but from a standpoint of their appearance. And to me, you know, what does that have to do with economics? And you were talking a little bit about how economics, the study of economics, is has uh, changed a little bit. Can you talk yeah, a little so bit about that? Yeah, so the field that I work in, yeah, definitely, the field I work in is applied microeconomics. And instead of uh, focusing as a set of questions to answer, applied microeconomics has evolved into being a set of tools uh, that's used to answer a much broader set of questions than what historically has been economics. So uh, kind of historically, a lot of um, empirical research has said, well, this is correlation, not causation. We can't really identify a causal relationship. Uh, Applied microeconomics instead has focused on, well, let's try to push the envelope and actually find causal estimates. And let's develop a set of tools that will allow us to differentiate um, relationships that we can say are actually causal from ones that are um, correlations. And when we're talking about causation, um, you know, people who are not in academia may not be familiar with those particular, that particular terminology. But basically what we're saying is, okay, you know, 100 years ago a study showed that uh, people who smoked had more wrinkles. Right. The assumption that everyone came to was, oh, my gosh, if you smoke, you'll get wrinkles. Well, in fact, we don't know that. That's not what the study showed. The study just showed a relationship between smoking and more wrinkles. It didn't establish any kind of causation. It didn't say smoking caused those wrinkles. And whenever we're talking about any kind of a study, we have to be careful that we don't make the assumption that something caused something just because it's it's connected to it. And so what you're saying is is that – go ahead. And I'm saying, so even though this might not be true of our study, our study, we, we, can, we can eliminate some causal paths without identifying um, a single true cause. Um, but uh, economics is applied microeconomics in particular has built off the idea of uh, what has been the randomized control trial in um, medical studies and tried to translate that kind of causal identification into environments where randomized control trials aren't possible. So, in other words, this new new focus for uh, economics in these studies attempts to say, well, okay, if we can't establish that this caused that, we can at least establish that the, this didn't cause it or that didn't cause it. Certainly, yes. But but the okay, ideal is okay. always to, to make a causal tie. Sure, sure, so that we can actually do something about it. Yes, yeah, so we can actually <laughs> inform policy more wisely, yeah. Yes. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so if we have that understanding, which I now do, thank you very much, Ray, we're going to move to your background of studies. I was amazed at how many different kinds of studies that you have done. They seem to be somewhat randomized, you know, from the the outside looking in. Tell me the different kinds of studies you've done and the link between them. Sure. So a a large set of uh, the work I've done has been looking at uh, predictors of success in um, undergraduate higher, grades in uh, higher education. Um, so, uh, one. So, my initial studies were thinking about, hey, 
well, what would happen if you give a students, if you pay students to get higher grades, how much do their grades go up? Uh, so I used data from students at Clemson University who, while they were students already, they were informed that for what well, if they remained in this institution um, and they maintained a 3.0 GPA, they would be getting three to $5,000 a semester. So we could use Ooh. the population of students that had already um, been admitted into the institution and been students there, but they weren't informed of this until after um, they were already there. So they weren't choosing to enter the institution because of the scholarship, right? So, so that's mm -hmm. the part of the selection uh, because of the scholarship into the education was not a concern. And then we could compare students who qualified for the scholarship because they were in-state students to ones who couldn't because they were out-of-state students to try to estimate uh, the impact of uh, this kind of scholarship on grades. So this is kind of where my research got started. And um, I actually found an increase in grades, but a lot of it was due to students taking easier courses, not to students getting higher grades in the same course. Um, so following that path and looking at that same sample of students, we also saw well, um, some, some research on transfer students, some research on uh, how the time of day of courses um, impacts uh, the grades that students get, uh, that students get um, how uh, things like um, uh, college, uh, the college football affects student grades and so on. So that's kind of a lot of my research involves that sample of students from Clemson University. Um, I've also done some research on, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the uh, religion, um, particularly negative publicity to the Catholic Church and how that has affected um, how how many people go to Catholic schools and uh, donations and expenditures of Catholic institutions. Um, and uh, you, the results there are not surprising. Um, in places where there has been more negative press around the Catholic Church, you've seen a steeper decline in Catholic school enrollment and um, a slight increase in welfare spending because of uh, less charitable provision by the Catholic Church. Hmm. Okay. So, all right. So yeah. your 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 research can take a number of different tacks, but it's all looking at what's going to be good for the student. Uh, that's correct. Okay, great. So yeah. now let's get to the study today, and that is that pretty girls. Um, did you study both males and females? We did. We did look okay. at both males and females. Okay. Okay. So attractive people. Get better grades. Yes. Um, when and I first read that, I thought, oh, my gosh, knock me over with a feather. Who saw that coming? <laughs> I mean, of course, we all yeah. know this, right? Um, yes. But we've assumed that anyway, and it's been um, something that we all think we know. But you've actually quantified this. But there's a right. different uh, a, a difference. Your your research goes deeper. It's not just that they get better grades. It's that they're they're evaluated better, even... In online classes, and I want to talk about They're that. But first, let me, throw, yeah. let me throw out our phone number first because I'm sure that we have some people that would like to ask you questions about this study. Sure. The call-in number is six four six three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. We also have our chat room open if you'd like to just type in a question or a comment. So. How did this research come about? What were you thinking when you decided to do this research? And please tell me the findings and how it is, how it compares between real-life interaction uh, between student and, and grader and online interaction between student and grader. Sure. So, so let me kind of uh, set, uh, set a framework for, for the question. Um, we do know okay. that better-looking people um, have better labor market outcomes. Uh, the least attractive are typically found to face a labor market penalty of 5 to 10%. And uh, the difference in earnings between the least and most attractive individuals is around 15%. Um, these findings tend to exist both for men and for women. Often they're found to be larger for men, in part because the least attractive women um, are found to be less likely to participate in labor markets at all. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Um, 
in addition, um, we find that the better-looking individuals tend to sort into those occupations where beauty matters more. Uh, so sales careers. Um, there's a really interesting paper that looks at law school graduates and how they select into careers differently. And um, even though the quality of the graduates does not vary very much by appearance, the better-looking graduates go into um, private sector jobs and the least attractive are more likely to become public defenders. And the, the fields within the law profession that involve more interactions uh, with other individuals, uh, those are the ones where um, the, be the better-looking uh, law school graduates uh, go towards. Um, there's also some research suggesting that better-looking politicians are more likely to get more votes and win their elections, and that better-looking professor professors get much higher ratings of instructions from their students than less good-looking professors. And that's one of the key predictors of student ratings is actually uh, professor appearance, not a whole bunch of other traits or how much students learn. So I was reading an article just, just yesterday that, that, in the, that yeah. talked about that, about um, the um, inaccuracy or invalidity of student ratings of their professors because of yeah, some of the criteria that... Yeah, there's been research that shows students 30-second videos before the semester mm -hmm. starts and compares the ratings based on that 30-second video and the end of the semester rating and basically suggests that th students 30 seconds in have made up their minds on what they're going to wow. rate their professors. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so, so we know that appearance matters. The question is, well, why does appearance matter so much? And, uh, you know, a lot of people might say, well, you know, it's clearly discrimination in favor of the more attractive. But before we just want to throw that D word out, let's try to think of other reasons that it might matter. So one, one potential story is that appearance is itself directly productive. And in some professions, um, that's going to be the case. So if you think of models and actors, of course, appearance um, is going to be productive in those careers. In sales careers, um, you know, if you're a better looking individual, are you more likely to make the sale? The answer is yes. So to the employer of a salesperson, um, appearance is definitely going to be directly productive. Um, another path through which appearance might matter is through confidence. If better-looking people are more confident and confidence matters, um, then it isn't surprising that better-looking people um, are more successful. Um, and the third story, and this is the one that we are really focused on in our research, is that appearance might uh, be correlated with another trait that is um, productive in labor markets. So if you think of you know, being attentive to detail um, or being the kind of person that uh, tries a little harder more generally, if you're that kind of person, well, sure, you're going to have um, better performance labor markets. But you're also going to bring those traits not just to your employer, you're going to bring them to the way that you treat yourself. And you might be the kind of person who grooms a little better, uh, who pays more attention to, hey, does this look good on me? Does it doesn't? What kind of haircut is good for me? What kind of makeup um, suits me best? And you will both have higher ratings in appearance and higher earnings and higher labor market outcomes, but it isn't because of the appearance. It's because of this third factor. Okay. And I've met many people in my lifetime that if you just look at them very objectively, mm -hmm. they're not that attractive. But the way they present themselves and the way they groom themselves makes them give the impression that they are terrifically attractive. Exactly. Right. Because, and, and this is kind of the idea we're going for, that appearance doesn't just communicate how good you look. It might communicate more about you. And that extra stuff that it communicates might also be productive in labor markets. Now, okay. this is a really hard factor to identify in a labor market itself because you'd have to think of, hey, these people who we identify as good looking, are they more productive even when we can't see them? Are they more productive generally or are they just more productive when we see them? And this is what we can do using academic data because students present their output in different environments, some in which they're seen and some in which they aren't. So we take advantage of the fact that we can observe students in a lot of different academic environments and compare whether students of the same appearance level uh, have different grades in these different outcomes. Um, so okay. more pre precisely, 
do better looking students perform better even when they're not being seen, such as in online courses, or do they just perform better when they're being seen, such as in traditional academic environments, like online, not like normal classroom courses? And, and so that's the, kind of the yeah. crux of your study, right, that we're going to talk that we're talking about today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the main thing that's been reported is if you just look at appearance and grades. So if you look at, you know, do better looking people get higher grades, we find that better looking females get higher grades and better looking males don't seem to have a result. But that doesn't really tell us much about why, which is why we focus most of our paper on this other part, the comparison of traditional and online courses. Because, hey, if, if a females get higher grades, well, there's a, there's a much longer, there's a lot of explanations. The first that comes to mind is if you're from a more affluent background, you might be able to afford better um, haircuts and better clothing, and you might have more time to devote to grooming and self-care, and you might also be able to afford more tutors and be able to you know, afford a luxury of not having to work while you go to school. So the extra income might lead to both higher appearance ratings and higher grades, but that doesn't mean that uh, you're getting higher grades because of your looks. However, if we look at the same student in two environments and find that their appearance predicts grades differently when they're being seen than when they're not being seen, then that limits the list of reasons why appearance matters. Okay. So tell us what your study showed. So we find that if you look at the difference between traditional and online grades for a student, that difference gets bigger as students get better looking. So the better looking you are, the bigger your, the higher your grade is in traditional courses compared to your grade in online courses. So for students of um, more modest appearance ratings, this difference between traditional and online grades is very small. As you get better and better looking, you see a higher premium to taking traditional courses compared to online courses. So, there's, so the, 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 the hypothesis that we were thinking about initially is the return to appearance due to some, product, some appearance being correlated to productive traits such as dedication and effort and so on. We don't find evidence of that. Dead. So that, that list of we were thinking about what are reasons that appearance matters, we can diminish the importance of that hypothesis of appearance being correlated to productive traits and now give more importance to some of the other reasons that appearance matters. The attention to detail, et cetera. Yeah, so we can kind of discount that idea because if that were the case, then the difference between the return, uh, so the return to appearance would be similar whether you're seen or not seen. We find that the return to appearance is mainly present in traditional environments and not in online environments. So if you're a 10 you're going to do better with grades if you take an in-person classes. That's yes. So the the if you're a seven, you are, the, it probably won't right. make a difference, but you'll do better than a five. Yes. So no matter so whether you're if online you're 10, or in-person, you'll get A's in traditional courses and B's online. If you're uh, a three, you'll get the same grade in both. Okay. If you're a five, you'll get the same grade in both. Right. So okay. as the price right. increases, the difference between the two increases. Okay. All right. So, first of all, you know, this this is interesting to me that it, it applies to online as well up to a point. Um, but what does this mean? What does this mean socially? What does this mean academically? You know, what 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 does all of this mean? And I know that's hard to speculate, but you have you must have some ideas. Right. So it means that when people want to when people look at why do better looking people make more money some people might want to dismiss that as being something that we need to be concerned about because they'd say hey we don't have to worry about that the reason that's happening is because people who are better looking are also more productive you know people who are better looking you know their looks are just something that signals to employer hey you should hire me i pay attention to detail i'm a better better I put in more effort generally, that's why I look better. So when you hire me, you're hiring a better employee, not because I'm better looking, but because my good looks signal to you that I'm a better person for labor markets generally. So our research suggests that you can't dismiss the return to appearance with this explanation. You're going to have to turn to 
some of the other explanations that we talked about before. Okay. All right. So how does this change what we've been doing all along? How does this change our assumptions? Good-looking people are the winners. Yes, that's correct. And good-looking people are the winners because of their appearance, not because they're more productive. So the stories about confidence and about discrimination um, are now better stories, more likely to be uh, the causal path through which appearance matters. Um, however, I have some caveats to, to, to kind of... Um, yeah. <laughs> Good. I'm delighted that you have a few caveats on that one. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so there's other reasons why our results might look the way they are. So one uh, potential path is it could be the case that better-looking individuals have a higher level of confidence, but only when they know they're being seen. Uh, so uh, part of the reason that, that, that grades might be higher is because confidence leads to better performance. Right? So better-looking students, if they have higher confidence ratings, which psychology suggests that better-looking people do have more confidence generally, um, if that's the reason that better-looking people get higher grades, then the kind of confidence that leads to the higher grades has to be uh, specific to the situation, has to, be, has to vary by situations. So if you're a better-looking person, you have more confidence when you're being seen, but then when you're in an online environment and no one can see, oh, look how good-looking this person is, then your confidence diminishes. So that kind of situational confidence also would lead to the result that we're observing. Something else that might be happening is um, that uh, the kinds of assignments that take place in online courses and the kinds of assignments that, are, that take place in traditional courses um, reward better-looking people. So if you think of presentations where you have to stand up in front of the class uh, and be graded for that, that's an environment where a better-looking person might do might thrive, where but that kind of assignment isn't present in online courses. So the kinds of um, courses, because the assignments vary uh, between traditional and online courses, so will the performance of uh, the better-looking students. And something else that might matter is peer effects. So we we found uh, evidence that. Um, people aim to please uh, the better looking. So in a, in a peer group, the better looking individuals are going to get more attention and more support from their peers than the less good looking individuals. So if a better looking individual uh, shows up to class and says, oh, I didn't do my homework. Can I copy off of you? Well, the better looking individual might, be, might get more peer support than the less good looking individual. They might be more likely to ask the question in the first place. So part of well, because in online environments there's less of these peer interactions, uh, there's going to be less peer support for the good looking. So far, just about everything that you've said, except the part about the the correlation between online and in person, up to a point. I mean, I, any high school girl could have told you this, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, but the I, significance I've never been is a high school that. Girl. So I don't know, but, um, but <laughs> the, the, the significance, <laughs> of course, is that you have now documented it. So I mean, it's not yes. just oh, we all right. know this. I mean, it's uh, it's it's documented and it's and it's quantified and sure. and that is of great value. I'm not saying that to diminish yeah. what you've done. Right. I'm just saying that you know, I mean, oh yeah, well, sure. A high school it's girl different to... would have been able to tell you this. She wouldn't have been able to prove right. it, but she would have been able to tell you this. Um, so the problem that a, I have a, with this. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, so I was also well, going to talk about the relationship between professors and appearance. So there we go. Um, a lot of the the, the 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 press coverage of this of of our research was kind of saying, hey, this is because professors um, kind of treat better looking students differently. And sure, that might be the case. That when a perf that um, there might be some implicit biases that professors carry that might lead them to treat students differently. So that kind of implicit bias can be reflected in two ways, one that leads appearance to be productive and one that is actually more discriminatory. So the first kind of um, path is when a better-looking student comes to your office hours for help because of your biases in favor of better-looking individuals, instead of giving that person two minutes of help because they're good-looking, 
you want to prolong the length of his interaction so you end up teaching them more. So better-looking students end up with higher grades not because they're treated uh, more favorably for identical for identical assignments, but because their assignments aren't identical because they were able to learn more by leveraging their appearance towards learning. Okay. Um, in contrast to the idea that, hey, two identical assignments, oh, that student's better looking, that student's going to get a higher grade, right? So that's, that's observationally equivalent. We wouldn't be able to tell the difference between these two, but they're very different as far as um, as far as the the way that appearance gets turned into grades. Okay. All right. The, and, and that's an interesting turn of phrase, the way appearance gets turned into grades. I like that one. <laughs> um, Thanks. One of the, the things that, that I was thinking of when you were, were talking about this is we have different standards for beauty. Um Sometimes, I mean, gosh, what, what, what was it back in, you know, the Marilyn Monroe, curvy, curvy, and then we went into mm-hmm. the, you know, straight as a board, and, except for the fake boobs, you know, I mean, I, our standards of beauty change. Were you able to get any data or make any conclusions about whether, about the changes in standards for beauty or sure. individual preferences for standards of beauty? Yeah, so the question, this is the, in, in the econ- beauty of economics, economics of beauty literature, this is like beauty in the eye of the beholder hypothesis is kind of how we think about this. So is beauty in the eye of the beholder or, or isn't it? Uh, so the, the, in, the literature has kind of been consistent in finding that uh, beauty isn't um, in the eye of the beholder, that our ratings of appearance tend to be very similar not only within social groups but across social groups. But how we did how we dealt with that in our study is that um, we had you know about thirty some raters look at about six thousand images, but all the raters the images that they looked at the first fifty ones were the same for all the raters. The first is that it kind of primed the raters to have a sense of what the population that they were evaluating looks like. So before the first rating that we were actually going to use that it was going to generate information for us they had all looked at 50 images. And those first 50 um, were the same for everyone, which also gave us the opportunity to see, hey, these first 50 ratings, are are they similarly rated by all the raters? So here's what we found by comparing those first 50 images across all our raters. There were some raters that were super hard raters. There were some raters that were super easy raters. Like the hard raters didn't give anyone anything but a, above a six. And the super easy raters, <laughs> they didn't give anyone anything below a six. There were also what we call wide raters. They used all 10 numbers on a one to 10 scale. But there were also some very narrow raters. Like they stuck to six through eight. Then they only used those three numbers and their variation was much, was much narrower. So because we had these high and low raters and wide and narrow raters, what we did was we normalized the ratings. So you take the rating for each individual, subtract it to the rater mean, and divide it by the rater standard deviation. So the mean is what was the average rating that that rater gave. Uh, the standard deviation is was a measure of whether they were a wide rater or a narrow rater. And once you adjust for um, whether they were wide or narrow or high or low, there was like a super high correlation across all the ratings for uh, those 50 images. So you're saying that that means that we don't vary that much in our standards of beauty when we're making right. So we so given a scale, yeah, given a scale of one to ten, different people use it differently. But once you adjust for the ways that different people use the one to ten differently, uh, there was a very high level of agreement among all the different rangers. It would be interesting to do do look at that ten years from now to see if it's changed. Oh, so the same. So in ten years, the same individuals might get different. Uh, ratings, maybe if if um, slightly some nuance uh, social changes, but um, but there's the, the evidence that even though uh, that the kind of individuals that um, that we think of as ideals for their age might change, um, there's a lot more uh, social similarity on who we give her ratings to than than we thought in the past. Hmm. Okay. All right. So uh, we tend to have a generalized agreement on what's, what's attractive um, as, as a culture, and or at least as your raters. 
And then we can look at that. I'm trying, you know, my mind tends to be pretty linear, so I'm going, okay. So we have identified three things that might explain why attractive people get more, get get more, get better, whatever criteria you want to use. Um, and it could be just because we like good-looking people. It could yeah. be because they are, have more confidence and pay more attention to detail. Mm-hmm. And then the third no. reason so might that, be because the, 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 they pay more attention to detail is the one that we can that our research discounts. Okay, so that discounts so, it because of the online yeah. thing. Okay, That's all right, all right. And then my brain is going, okay, but there was a third one there that we talked to and I talked about, and I'm looking discrimination. That, yeah. yeah, okay, so, so discrimination. Yeah. So we've yeah. got these three reasons that we've looked at. The one we've eliminated based on your re- your research findings. But mm-hmm. the other two are still in play. That's correct. Okay. So can we eliminate any of those two based on your, your study, and uh, or does one have more influence than the other? Uh, so to, to, so far, no. Um, okay. But, but there's still room uh, for us to kind of play with our data a little bit more. And one thing that we want to do next is to look at, how appearance works with pure effects. So what we want to think of is um, there are some classrooms where we've got ratings on appearance on not just one student in the class, but on several students in the class. So these are traditional classroom environments um, where we have ratings for several students in the classroom. And we want to, what we want to do next with this is think, so if we have a student who has a very high appearance rating, but they're in a classroom where everyone has a high appearance rating. Does appearance matter differently from when a student with a high appearance rating has a peer group where they're an outlier? Uh, where they're Ooh, I like only, that. Yeah. So, <laughs> That's so interesting. If we wanna, we're, we're ratcheting yeah, so, up the stakes here for the attractive people. <laughs> right. So if, this, if one of the stories that we want to say is, hey, um, maybe one of the reasons that better-looking students get higher grades in traditional environments is because their peers treat them and, and you know, support, their, support them because they're better-looking, then that'll happen more often in an environment where you have the outlying high-appearance-rated person, but it won't be as good a story in an environment where everyone has a high-appearance rating. Hmm. Um, but but we still have not uh, been able to... Uh, find convincing enough um, estimates to make uh, to be able to answer that question. Well, if you find you know if you can support that, I mean, uh, what you're doing then is scientifically proving that you should always have an uglier wingman. Uh, so there's actually been some some research on that as well, and the finding is typically you want to be better looking than your wingman, but you don't want your wingman to be ugly. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Too ugly and it's a no-go. <laughs> then it's then, 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 bleed over yeah. if you're hanging around with people that, that are yeah. just way too ugly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yep. I know, and n- none of these findings are ever too surprising. It's like, yes, any high school girl could have told you that too. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. But but there is value. There's great value. Uh, you know, I mean, oftentimes we'll read about a study that the government funded or something. We all go, really? Everybody knew this. But the fact yeah. is, until it's actually proven and the, until the, yeah. the data is in, we might know yeah. it, but we don't really know it. So there is value right. in all of these studies, um, yeah. I think, e- even though we might say, oh, who, we, everybody knew that. Why are you spending time studying that? Um, yeah. From the standpoint of a professor who's giving the grades, what might this study indicate to the professor? Uh, so so it, it should give us pause in, in a couple ways. Um, the first one, which I think is probably the most useful, is that we need to think about how we, um, how we craft our assignments. So if there is a potential for there to be differential treatment by appearance, um, maybe through a path of confidence or maybe through a path of um, a natural desire to please better-looking individuals or because um, better-looking individuals can leverage their, their attractiveness in certain environments, we, we might want to think about creating assignments that don't create too much, um, too much opportunity for that. So we know that you know, because of the way appearance works through confidence, 
that uh, class presentations are probably going to um, create more opportunities for better-looking individuals to leverage their appearance integrates. So we might not want to give too much of our grading, um, too much of a class's grade to this kind of assignment. Um, or, you know, there might be um, in, in group interactions, um, students with higher appearance ratings might be able to leverage their appearance um, in ways that might be problematic. So we might want to limit how much of our grading is due to um, group uh, group projects. Um, also, uh, to the extent that it's uh, possible, um, if there are written assignments or graded assignments at the end of the semester, um, it might be useful for us to do those blind. So have students write numbers instead of their names on their final exams, uh, and that we tie those names to the numbers after we grade them. Or that, um, you know, have uh, students written papers uh, that they turn them in with a random number um, that we don't uh, tie back to the, the, the actual grade until after it's been graded. Hmm. Um, so I, these are things that would be easy uh, to execute. They wouldn't take much extra effort um, uh, because students, to the extent that there might, there might be some stereotype threat, uh, students who um, fear that they might be discriminated against based on their appearance might actually, since they're no longer fearing that discrimination, be able to perform um, even better than they did in the past. It's interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, so the Are there any uh, attempts, based on your research at, at your um, um, institution, are there any attempts to perhaps implement something like that? So so it's, thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about my institution. I think that um, some of the coverage has, uh, in, by newspapers, that have actually made it seem like our research is about our institution. Um, but I don't think that's actually fair to our institution to think of that way. So that's like saying that, you know, suppose you did a randomized control trial of a drug on a whole bunch of patients and you find out something as a result of this experiment. Did you find something out about the patients or did you find something out about the drug? Right? And I'd say yeah. that, well, actually what we discovered was something about the treatment, something about the way the drug works. And this population was just who we actually happened to uh, have opportunity to access for this experiment. So I'd say the same thing about our campus. They were very generous in sharing this information with us, and we actually found something about the way appearance works. And, you know, it's great that our university shared the data with us, but what we found out wasn't so much about our university, but about the way appearance interacts uh, with grades. So, well, and I think, um, I mean, anybody who's, who's you know, o older than probably age 10 pretty much knows that this is, a, you know, this is not isolated information. I mean, yeah, our, our personal Thanks. experience yeah. can tell us that this is applicable just about anywhere we are. Yeah, yeah so, I, I, I um, agree. So, so that said, um, my, my colleagues are also uh, – so, so the people who I've spoken to um, are probably going to be the kind of people who take this as an opportunity to self-reflect. They're going to say, hey, you know, like where – even if appearance matters only to a small amount um, – when I grade students, I don't want that to be where the grade comes from. So how can I use this kind of information to self-reflect and think, hey, how can I create opportunities to um, make my environment one that is, you know, my classroom environment one that where, you know, there isn't as much grade bias as there was in the past, even if it is small. Um, the, the harder part of, of the bias to get rid of is um, kind of, to the degree that we might be hardwired to behave differently towards um, the better looking. So there's some literature in psychology where they um, examine parental time use and they look at how much time parents spend with their different children. And there's strong evidence that parents, even from the moment where the babies are super tiny, devote at each single interaction a tiny um a tiny bit more time and attention to their cuter kids. So through a lifetime of raising a kid, the better looking babies within a household end up getting a significant, uh, significantly larger amount of time from their parents. So even when you're thinking about parents and with their kids and 
parents will tell you they love all their kids equally, even when parents are trying to be fair, they still, by tiny in tiny, tiny ways, favor their cuter kids a little bit more. It's, um, I can see that. I so can also see that it's more it's behavior related as well. You know, you hmm. might end up spending time with your difficult kid. You might spend a lot of time with the sure. difficult kid because you have to. But the the nice kid, you want to spend more time with. So I would imagine that there's a a level of of um, a, a quality in the relationship with the not so difficult kid that the difficult kid would never have. I mean, it, some of that is just life, isn't it? Right. That's exactly it. Right. So just like um, so, so in that context, we might place our liter- our, our findings um, with with the rest of the implicit bias literature. Um, there's individuals, whether we want to be or not, um, our behavioral choices, particularly ones that we have to make quickly, um, and particularly choices that we're making without thinking about the fact that we're making these choices, um, are explained or predicted or uh, by, by by biases that such as our preferences. So, so a lot of these biases recently have been. Um, uh, have been discussed in the context of policing and race. Uh, so this might fall into, um, even though it's not nearly as significant as a social concern, but professors in their interactions with students might be informed um, in a small degree by implicit biases that favor uh, the better looking. Okay. Okay, so what uh, you you talked about a little bit about what we could do about that from the standpoint of the professor, but what about from the standpoint of the student? Oh, so that yeah, that's great. So students, um, you know, like they shouldn't take for granted the fact that they're actually being observed. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, part of what students can do is, to the degree that you that your appearance. You know, people have natural appearance endowments, and um, within your given endowment, there's a degree to which you can, you know, adjust your appearance positively or negatively. And so to the degree that you have room, some wiggle room there, uh, there is a return to improving your appearance. So being better groomed and, um, you know, being more informed about uh what are more and less flattering hairstyles or clothing choices, um, these small tweaks in your own appearance can have rewarding consequences. Certainly in the labor market, they're very large and very important, but also to a smaller degree in, in classroom environments. Sure. So when you roll out of bed five minutes before class and, you know, maybe if you're lucky you brush your teeth and you throw your coat over your right. pajamas at class, you're probably not doing yourself any favors. So that's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so how do you envision, how ideally would you like to see this information used or built on with further studies? So can I, So there's, there's the, 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 our research is actually in the context of a large literature on appearance. And um, I think that research in general like shouldn't be built on a single study but it should, you know, like think about uh, one particular, so it's a drop in a bucket of the research in this large question of how and why appearance matters. So, you know, there's a, a similar study um, at an Italian university where they're trying to think of, you know, how beauty predicts grades in student exams. And the Italian university system works a little bit differently from uh, the American one. And in this particular um, university context, students could choose whether to take oral or written exams. Oh, um, that's cool. So, yeah, it was really cool. So the, the researchers were saying, hey, do students who are better looking make different choices on whether to take oral or written exams? And uh, what do you think? I would think the, the good-looking ones would take the uh, orals because they're in person. That's exactly it. And if you've, if you've tried to say, hey, better-looking students, particularly male better-looking students, were more likely to take oral exams. And, you know, there was a bigger return to appearance in oral exams than in written exams, right? So our study is the second one that's suggesting, hey, even when you're looking at the same student in different environments, appearance predicts 
their uh, their grades differently. So appearance, the return to appearance is present and it's context specific. Right. So uh, this is something that you know as college professors we need to be informed of um, when we define assignments. But it's also something that's telling us something bigger about the real world. Um, there's also another study that looks at um, labor markets and criminal markets and appearance. Um, so this is a study got a bunch of press about five years ago, but um, the finding was that better looking individuals are less likely to engage in criminal behavior. And part of the reason that happens is because better looking individuals are more successful in job markets. Right? So now we can add another kind of link to this chain is, well, part of what's happening as well is that better looking individuals to a small degree will be more successful in academic markets, which leads to better success in labor markets. So Now, this shows um, you how devious my mind works, because when you said that okay. about people, good-looking people have uh, uh, le uh, less criminal activity, I would think it's because they're more memorable. <laughs> oh, so they know that they're going to get... People wouldn't be able to remember that, it, that you, you know, they wouldn't be able to identify you. <laughs> yeah, so, but... but but this study actually found that it wasn't ordinary people who were engaging in crime. It's those in the, you know, bottom quartile of appearance. So it's actually ugly individuals are more likely to be criminals, not just ordinary looking individuals. Wow. Um, and these so, ugliest individuals are also the ones who are most penalized generally. So I can envision um, uh, uh, in a few years that I could apply for a government grant to have my facelift. Because uh, it would be better well, for society. So, so is it cheaper for society <laughs> to pay for your incarceration or for your facelift? Uh, yes, so it might actually go. save government money to. Uh, That's right. To, to, to subsidize, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, my lipo. You can yeah. do my lipo for me on the, <laughs> on the tax dollar. Yeah, I think we could do yeah, this. So, <laughs> uh, I think. Well, well, well good luck. Um, good luck getting that, that law change. You're not going to um, help me with this, in other words. I, I'm probably not. No. But it's, it's funny that you bring up appearance, uh, I mean, pardon, overweight status. So that's actually something that we asked our raters for a subset of the questions was to rate uh, the individuals on um, overweight status because we wanted to see if some of the mechanism through which appearance was mattering was through overweight. And um, because we have a sample of young individuals in Colorado, which is uh, the lowest BMI state in the union, we didn't get very many uh, individuals in our sample who are rated overweight, not enough to identify anything. So wow. in, in another uh, university context, um, a, another researcher might be able to uh, do a similar study to ours, uh, but looking at overweight status as a predictor of grades. Um, we didn't have enough variation in our sample, which, you know, is not a bad problem to have, I suppose. No, but yeah, I would bet. I would bet that uh, the any differences are huge and dramatic when it comes to weight variations. Yeah, uh, because we uh, we really live in a culture of you know um, uh, of um, overweight hatred. You know, I, I mean, yeah. we really see it as a personal flaw when we encounter someone who's overweight. Yeah, that's often the case. Yeah, and and so I bet you those those uh, the results would be really dramatic and more dramatic than just you know overall appearance. Um, so are you going to try and do that research somewhere else? Uh, I, I, we'd have to find uh, some other institution after the press that our institution um, has received. I'm not sure if other colleges will be eager to have their names tied to this kind of research, but definitely a, a path we could pursue in the future. But we'd have to look elsewhere. Why? Why? You know, that's an interesting comment. Why? I would think that the university would would be happy to have attention to one of its researchers and oh, findings. Um, well, but the, I think that some of the journalists have um, tied the finding to our institution in particular, not to uh, colleges oh. in general. Okay, yeah. so all of those professors at your school are doing right. this, but yeah, I yeah. see, I see. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and I agree you know, speaking speaking as a journalist, sometimes we do tend to oversimplify um, mm -hmm. uh, to the detriment of, of listeners and readers, and um, and that's unfortunate because I think that this certainly, if anything, is universally applicable. This is 
Um, and, and again, I think it's because we've all seen it. We've all known it in our hearts. Yeah. We just yeah. haven't seen it, you know, uh, studied and quantified mm-hmm. and formalized. Um, okay, great. So what's in the future for you? What, what studies are coming up for you? So we're, we're doing, we're in the middle of uh, this peer effect study. Um, I'm also interested in uh, doing more research on how um, college athletics relates to student outcomes. Um, so there's been some study that studies looking at, you know, does um, your does the performance of a college team? Uh, so I'm from Clemson, uh, is kind of is where I went to graduate school, and Clemson uh, this fall did really well in college football. Uh, not as well as we would have liked. It was uh, we lost in the national championships, but as far as Clemson goes for football, for football this was a great great season. So as a result of Clemson doing so well in football this past mean that Clemson students learned differently or potentially the oh. students' academic achievement diminish as a result. Uh, so uh, I've, I've done a study with a co-author, uh, Kurt Rothoff, where we looked at Clemson students through a 20-year period and found that um, male students actually, uh, so pardon me, female students don't do quite as well in seasons where football is more successful. There's a really the female study com- yeah. Yes, yeah. so there's a okay. separate study coming out of the University of Oregon where they find that male students um, are the ones who are more affected by football. So we see football mattering, but we see it mattering differently in different environments. So one thing that's different about the University of Oregon is that there um, the university is 55% female. So male students um, are in the minority. If you look at uh, Clemson, there the university is 55% male, so female students are in the minority. So there might be some interaction between these um, these you know college success and football shocks and the kind of population that your college is that kind of affects males and females differently in different uh, college environments. So a lot of the, so appearance might be you know working in different ways. So we can think of you know. Um, the impact of appearance also being a function of uh, whether you're in a mainly female classroom or in a mainly male classroom. And female and male appearance might impact you differently in different contexts, depending on whether it's a more male or more female. You know, you've triggered something in me, and I'm pretty sure, I cannot cite them, but I'm pretty sure I've seen a couple of studies uh, that came out when I was looking at schools for my students about the effect of um, uh, grades in um, single-gendered classrooms. Um, mm-hmm. That, I, and I, as I recall, memory. But as I recall, it was girls fared better in all girls classrooms. Boys fared better in mixed classrooms, not all boy classrooms. So that finding is driven mostly by performance in uh, science and math. It so so? Okay. a lot of the research in that direction has um, has focused on how much stereotype threat uh, girls suffer, particularly from high school on, uh, because of the stereotype that girls aren't as good at math as yeah. boys might be. Yeah. I so see. so the, the biggest return to single uh, gender classrooms is for females in math and science. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Yeah. So um, I would like to see you. This is where I give you my laundry list of what I would like to see researched. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to hear it. <laughs> You're I'll taking notes? Do you have your pencil sharpened for yeah, me? I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would like to see age, whether age affects grades that professors hand out. Because I can you, answer that question. You can. There's been research yeah, on that? Yeah, we, we controlled for age. Because one thing that a critic looking at our study might have been able to say is, Oh, this is age, right? So higher, older students are getting, you know, different grades, and older students get lower appearance ratings. So this is because of age. So we were actually able to control for age. And in lots of colleges um, who have more traditionally aged population, they wouldn't have seen much difference in difference in ages. Uh, but since a lot of since we're a commuter college, and a lot of our students are um, are a bit older, we actually saw students of older ages as well. So the impact of age on grades is uh, older students um, get higher grades at a diminishing rate. So 
the you know the difference between 18 and 24 is going to be really big. The difference between 24 and 29 isn't so big anymore. And between from 29 on, it's it basically flattens off. What about and you uh, you probably don't even have the data on this. What about students over 50? Uh, yeah, that, there's 40? not so much there. Yeah, there's but, so but there. there's yeah. not. Yeah, the the confidence interval uh, once you get uh, to students who are so old is a little. It's it's yeah. too wide to say much. Yeah. But um, but if if our study had focused on on that particular question, we would have designed it in a way that would have allowed us to um, identify something better. Uh, oh, we sure. also looked at the impact of race, and we found that uh, for our college, white students uh, get slightly higher grades hmm. than non-white. It would students. be really interesting to um, figure out whether any of these, um, uh, you know, like you were saying about the, the research, I always, I always say research studies are like looking through a little, a little piece of a window. You know, you, when you see that individual study, you're, you're basically mm-hmm. seeing a little four-inch square through that window, but you get enough studies together, together and pretty soon That's you can correct. get a pretty good image yeah. of what that whole window is showing you. Yeah. And it would be nice to uh, have other institutions repeat these studies to see if it is, in fact, applicable um, regionally or, um, you know, in, a, in another uh, a, a number of other criteria. Yeah, I'd be Getting happy back to, see to our original thing, go, go ahead. I would be happy to see other people do similar research. I'd be very interested to see um, uh, how this finding varies in, in different uh, college environments. Yeah. Well, and I think because especially in our country being so large, the regional differences, um, you yeah. know, are, are, are pretty significant, I think, uh, if you're, you know, in the Deep South or if you're in the Pacific Northwest or, you know, um, mm-hmm. there are some yeah. real differences. So it would be nice to see if, if um, you know, your findings are pretty universal uh, for all of these geographic areas or whether they're different. So the beauty of this research is that with something that we can look at and examine more closely in making decisions and designing classrooms and designing curricula. So I thank you for this research. I think it's significant. I think it's interesting. And, yes, on the surface we go, oh, whoa, whoa, pretty girls get better grades. But I hope we've, in the last hour, been able to uh, pick that apart and uh, uh, indicate that that's that's just a little teensy piece of this research. So I thank you for doing your research, Ray, and and, uh, look forward to seeing your other findings. Thanks, and thanks for having me on. You're welcome. We usually end the show with a quote, and I cannot tell you how many, many quotes I found about academia and pretty people. Um, but I think one of the approaches and the, the, the article that I found or the, the quote that I ended up going with um, is a little bit different. And it's from Golda Meir, which uh, some of you may remember as a political leader from a, a few decades back. Not being beautiful was the true blessing. Not being beautiful forced me to develop my inner resources. The pretty girl has a handicap to overcome. And I personally, uh, I, I kind of went early into this quote this week, Ray, because I wanted your input on that quote, on Golda Meir's quote. Do you have any? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... Uh, so it's 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 interesting. Uh, she actually, uh, our our campus used to be a, a residential area, and um, there's one building on our campus. It's a house where she lived when she was young. So I'm I'm struck by by that coincidence um, that her house is now a building on a college campus, a house where she lived where she was when she was a young girl in Denver. Um, wow, very cool. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, but um, well. It's actually potentially the case that one consequence of our findings is that um, when a pretty girl is seen with a high GPA, that it be discounted, that it be perceived that, oh, it's only um, a result of the fact that she might have been given preferential treatment um, in classrooms and in other academic experiences. But I, I think on net, it's, it's um, that the preferential treatment is outweighs uh, that kind of um, but it's all uh, something to think about, and it's all something for us to it consider. Is. Ray, again, yeah. thank you so much for your research. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, listeners, for being with us on Three Women, Three Ways. Upcoming shows, we've got a number of really interesting ones coming up, and I hope you will join us. Come again next week for Three Women, Three Ways.